You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about an exciting subsector in the world of real estate investing. Actually, we have almost 150 episodes, I think, of the show. I've never actually been able to drill deep into this asset class, so I'm very excited to talk about RV Park Investments today. And joining me is Paul Moore, who is founder at Wellings Capital. Paul, welcome to the show. Andy, it's great to be here. And you know we have a lot to talk about today, especially RV parks. <laughs> but before we jump into the subsector, could we step back? Could you give us a little bit of your background and how you got into real estate investing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had an MBA. I was at Ford Motor Company in uh, your state of Michigan <clears throat> and um, ended up uh, starting my own company with a partner. And we were very fortunate to be able to sell it to a public firm uh, 26 years ago. And I kind of semi-retired a little bit and uh, started investing. And I thought, hey, I'm a full-time investor now. thought that was pretty cool. And I didn't realize I wasn't at all. I was a full-time speculator because I didn't know the difference. And, you know, now I see, you know, speculate. I mean, investing is when your principal is generally protected and you've got a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all protected and you've got a chance to make a return. And I'm not saying either one's wrong, but I think that we can all agree that investing uh, you know, prudently is the better way to build a long-term wealth, you know, mul- uh, multi-generational wealth for your family. And so it took me years to realize that I got into residential real estate, flipped a bunch of houses, flipped a bunch of luxury uh, waterfront lots, uh, finally got into commercial real estate about 10 years later, uh, which was about 14 years ago. And uh, since then, started as a multifamily syndicator, uh, wrote a book on multifamily investing called The Perfect Investment. But about two years later, I realized, you know, it's not really perfect if you have to overpay to get there. Mm. And that's what we saw in multifamily. So we expanded out into the fund model and we uh, invest in six different asset classes now through with other sponsors. Yeah. You know, Paul, you made a couple of points right off the bat. One I thought was interesting about the difference between investment and speculation. One thing that I've learned by covering this space, especially by speaking with so many family offices, it's interesting to me that the higher up the wealth ladder, can I use that word, the wealth ladder that, sure. that investors go, seems to me that they often become more conservative, more weighted towards capital preservation, which is kind of surprising because if you take the if you take the academic uh, viewpoint or you know what what an economist might tell you, it would be well, a family office or a ultra high net worth can afford to take more risk, right? They can yeah. actually have less money tied up in fixed income or you know because they don't but it, but what I have observed is just the opposite is they, Mm-hmm. The family offices focus more on capital preservation. That's exactly what you were talking about, you know, investment yeah. versus versus speculation. Yeah, I think what happens is, you know, with, with those years and with the pain, I mean, I had a podcast for four years called How to Lose Money. 
And we talked about the pain of losses on the way to success. And I think those losses, they hurt. And, you know, know, Buffett, his first big investment was a big loss uh, in a gas station in 1953, I think it was. And, um, you know, those painful losses lead people to want to be more conservative and not want to endure that pain again. And so, you know, uh, like over time, I've realized, you know, our main objective is Buffett's first rule, don't lose money. And after that comes income and appreciation and all that. Yeah. The three, what is it? The three golden rules for a family office, don't lose money, don't lose money and don't lose money. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Well, yeah. I think this is interesting, Paul, that, you know, you've, you've written books on multifamily and self-storage. You know, I have my copy here. So oh, yes. Available, I think, on Amazon. Um, yes. Storing up profits. Uh, it, and by the way, I have read it. So you can see I have some folded pages here. But okay, you say, you know, well, you have all these various books. You've, you've been in, I think, five sectors that you mentioned. Or, or five or six. Yeah, we're, we're investing in six right now. Okay, six. Would you say that you're sector agnostic or you, that you go where the opportunity is versus just, I have a favorite asset class mm-hmm. and I'm just, I'm going to stick to it come hell or high water? Because, yeah. you know, you mentioned multifamily mm-hmm. and it's like, well, I might love this asset class, but not at any price, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I was a certified shiny object chaser for years. It comes along with speculation, right? And um, I realized after reading Gary Keller and Jay Papazon's wonderful book, the one thing about 10 years ago, I'm like, hey, I have got to narrow my focus. You know, he who chases two rabbits catches neither. And, um, so I was like, okay, this is it. I told my wife, I promise I'm going to stay multifamily the rest of my life and career. And after beating our head against the wall for four or five years, you know, it just didn't make sense. But, you know, another thing that didn't make sense is for me to spread out into multiple asset classes. So we took a step back and said, wait a minute, 80, 20 rule is fractal which means the top 20 of the top 20% of the operators in a space would theoretically produce the top 80 of the top 80% of results. And it's true if you look at a graph, but we said, okay, what if we could go find and partner with those very best, the best we can find operators and invest with them. And that's what we decided to do. And so we are, yeah, you're right. We're sector class agnostic, and we are going to go where the opportunities are and specifically where the opportunities with the best operators are. For example, we believed in RV parks for years, but we couldn't find an operator. We couldn't nationally, we couldn't find a single operator that would do what we wanted you know, to do. We finally did, but that's an example. Well, and, and that's huge because, you know, all of these real estate assets, I mean, the the way I, at least personally, the way I look at it, you have, you have real estate, real estate in and of itself is a little bit boring, right? At the end of the, you know, I, I know not a lot of people love real estate. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, yeah. get any hate emails from the audience, but it's really pretty boring. It's land, it's sticks, it's bricks. But then when you have an operating business, that leverages the real estate asset. To me, that's a lot more interesting, right? A hospitality mm-hmm. asset, a self-storage asset, 
an right. RV park because now you have vertical integration. You can have a competitive edge, not only in acquiring an asset, potentially with a value add, but then also with management. And so there's just more, you know, you can conceivably stack competitive advantages or stack value. And it, to me, that gets a lot more interesting. So I want to turn now to RV parks because yeah. I, 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 I think I agree with you in the sense that, you know, they, they should be more popular or more investable than they are given their massive growth. But to your point, you know, the, the management hasn't necessarily been available or, or you had trouble, <clears throat> I guess, finding operators that you wanted to partner with. Yeah. Is, is that why RV parks were quote unquote, a little bit undiscovered to use your verbiage? Yeah, I think so. You know, um, whatever we invest in, and I, I mean, there's there's one exception, but generally we're looking for asset types that have a lot of mom and pop operators, mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, assets that are significantly undermanaged. I mean, you know, mom and pop operators often cannot, they don't have the desire, the knowledge, or the resources to really significantly upgrade and operate their asset well driving higher income, and of course, driving higher appreciation. And so acquiring these and paying these people very fair uh, prices um, can be very profitable. So we thought, eh, you know, just like mobile home parks, uh, RV parks, we thought would have that those kind of characteristics. And we found out that there's a couple, maybe three great operators in uh, RV parks, uh, one of them, Sam Zell's company, Equity Lifestyles, God rest his soul. And um, but there are a whole bunch of mom and pop operators out there. And so what's happened is I think a lot of these mom and pops have either owned these for you know years or decades for cash, or they just you know there's just not a big syndication uh, thing going in the RV park space like there is in self-storage, mobile home parks, multifamily especially. And so we couldn't find an operator that would buy from mom and pops, significantly upgrade and operate better, and then potentially sell to an institutional someday. We finally found one. But that's that's why I think it's a little bit undiscovered. There's just not a lot out there. People don't know where to invest. It almost sounds to me like self-storage maybe 20 years ago, or I, I guess I don't know the exact year, but it's very so fragmented, very fragmented, yeah. a lot of mom and pop, you know, cash businesses. Exactly. Now, we think it's where self-storage was in the mid nineties. Okay. So I wasn't far off. I was about a yeah. decade off, but okay. So, so where, so wow, 30 years though, that's, that actually is a, a huge difference, right? So this is mm -hmm. way earlier on that yeah. curve of right. professionalization and um you know like in self-storage there are so many companies doing roll-ups and then you have you know more reits publicly traded reits even invest so it's just much more mature rv parks uh you know obviously less mature but now that industry is growing You're not talking necessarily about the investment side the consumer side of RV parks and of RVs, the growth during the pandemic, but probably even before, but then during the pandemic, according to your report, uh, the rate of new 2020 campers grew by five times the record pre-pandemic 
That's right. And then KOA, uh, Camp of America, I think their advanced deposits went up 63% versus pre-pandemic. So what's good? Was that was that all the pandemic or was it uh, a long term growth trend that would just intensified during? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, um, it's a long-term growth trend. Uh, the RV ownership has risen 62% since 2001 to around 2021. And, um, you know, so it was already, there was a lot more people, millennials, boomers, all types of folks who wanted to have an RV or, you know, get access to an RV at least. And um, 26% of the RV campers um, in 2020 were first time. Uh, and, uh, amazingly, uh, while there's about 10 million RVs in the U S, uh, about eight or nine or 10 million more people say they want to buy one in the next five years. And so that's not really going to be possible with production maxing out at six or 700,000 a year, but there are some other ways to um, get RV usage to continue to grow. We'll get into that later. But um, yeah, I think it's like, it's a trend that's been out there for a while and the pandemic. I mean, remember three years ago this month, people were like cowering in their homes. Yet there was still a massive number of people who hit the road with an RV. And so some for the first time. So the pandemic was its its own growth driver, you know, already these long-term underlying fundamentals driving the growth of the industry, then it intensified during the pandemic. And then you've talked about, then there were additional factors two you know, boosters, we can call them yeah. after the pandemic. Let's, so let's talk about these more recent or these extra boosters that are, are driving growth. Yeah. Well, you know, what's crazy, Andy is, um, we just witnessed a first in world history. I mean, people say stuff like that and they can't prove, but I mean, it's, I think anybody can easily prove this and that is the remote work revolution. Mm. I mean, people, you know, from 2010 to 2020, I think the uh, number of people who could work part-time remotely was, it went up like fourfold and then the pandemic hit and then it went up just astronomically. And even today, uh, you know, three years after the pandemic started, we're seeing a massive increase in number of people who want to work remotely, who can work remotely, who are demanding to work remotely. And, um, you know, the uh, the statistics on that are, are quite staggering. I think a lot of your listeners would know that. And so people who want to work remotely, some of them saw people die or they were afraid of dying during covid And they said, you know, I really don't know if I'm really valuing this really fast paced lifestyle in, let's say, Manhattan or Chicago or L.A. I I think I'd rather be in Utah and or Idaho or Phoenix, or I'd rather at least vacation more. And, And they started looking at their family more and they started looking at what they valued. And so a lot of them made investments in RVs or had got access to RVs. And they started camping. They realized, hey, I can go to these camps and I can work at a picnic table here, mm-hmm. do my Zoom calls or phone calls. My kids can be playing putt-putt golf or in the pond over, you know, swimming over here in the lake or the pool. 
enjoying themselves and we can have a, a semi vacation. I, I even know one guy, a CEO of a startup who re who outfitted his RV to have an office and uh, office mode where desks would drop down on pulleys from the ceiling and um, he outfitted it so he could work and then he could pull those desks back up and throw his dirt bikes back in it and go somewhere else and he hit the road full time and so it's pretty pretty amazing factor that has really driven up rv usage but another one that goes hand in hand with that is the airbnb model the sharing model uh most of your audience probably knows this but uh rvs sit idle 49 to 50 weeks a year on average wow. well those can be now turned in to a rolling rental unit uh, by putting them on outdoorsy or rv share or other platforms, and they can actually be leased out. So uh, if I was scared to drive an RV, speaking for my wife, not me, you know, um, uh, or if I didn't have the insurance or wondered how to get it or what would happen if it breaks, breaks down, all that's covered by these platforms. Mm. Um, and, you know, they'll even set them up for you. You can drive to a rv park and if you have the arrangement set up you know you can have the rv sitting there waiting for you already hooked up to water and sewer and all that stuff um and this is pretty amazing so now these i mean here's an example a friend of mine in colorado who's a real estate investor she bought an rv about a year ago and she put it on a rental program rv share or outdoorsy or both for six months in Colorado last year, and she paid eighty thousand for the RV, and she cleared forty thousand in her first six months. Wow! And so it can be pretty profitable. And but what this means for RV parks? Think about it. Look at all the extra pressure. I mean, if this rolling rental unit, you know, that was in in action for two weeks a year is now in action 26 weeks a year in her case yeah. uh, six months that's going to massively increase the demand for rv park sites and it's true it's happening my rv owner next door here he said it takes up to a year to get a, a site now in parks that he wants to go to which is kind of sad but that's obviously putting huge supply and demand pressure on these parks. Oh, it's great for the RV park owners, right? To be getting reservations a, a year in advance. Now, yeah. you know, we, we don't need to, you know, do this exhaustively, but I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to understand that there's different types of RV parks, right? I, I don't have an RV. So, you know, some of this is, is new to me, you know, and I've even had, you know, heard people get these mixed up with uh, mobile home parks. Yeah. And it's like they're very different, you know, and depending on RVs, you know, that uh, RV owners can tend to be a very high income, you know, cohort, you know. So we have overnight RV parks, extended stay, workforce and destination. So those right. four different types of RV parks. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah. So an overnight park would be heavy on convenience. It might be right by a highway, you know, it's uh, but light on amenities. Um, it might be a place, you know, you would stop when you're on the way somewhere. So a lot of those bookings are one night or two nights, you know, when people are traveling somewhere else. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's a great model. Another one is the extended state park. And these are the kind that get mixed up 
with mobile home parks. You might like at Smith Mountain Lake in my area, there are RV parks that have, you know, that the RVs have skirting and they actually have decks and okay. even occasionally they might have a shed. And so these are, you know, these people are there to stay. They rent year in and year out. They pay a year, well, not a year. They pay three months in advance at the park that I'm aware of, like for the whole year. So they paid up by October of 23 to rent the whole year 24. And they've got like a seven-year waiting list, at least in this one case. Wow. Um, a third type is workforce housing, and that's not too popular. That's, you know, basically an RV park that, would support, you know, pipeline or oil workers, say in you know, Williston, North Dakota, for example. And then a fourth type, the one I like best, is a destination park. Now, there's two types of destination park. One that's at a destination like Branson, Missouri, or maybe Gatlinburg, or, you know, someplace like that. Or in, in these overlap as well. The other type of destination park is actually an amusement park itself, meaning that you know you can go to be at there. You can be there, uh, and you know it could be a replacement for Disney World, which actually you know that's one reason these are somewhat recession resistant. I won't say recession proof for sure, but <clears throat> you know this park might have all kinds of amenities, like a water park, um, a swimming uh, lake, uh, pools. Uh, putt putt golf, um, dog parks, trails, hay rides, face painting, gem mining, t shirt painting, uh, drive in theater, uh, human foosball, and some even have wibbits. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that these very, let's say, high end destination RV parks to me, the core appeal, I guess, as, as an investment thesis. And, and, and I'm not super knowledgeable about these, but, you know, I like hospitality. I like hospitality. To me, that's an interesting niche, you know, but it uh, hospitality, the demands, the consumer demands, the client demands are so high. Right. So it's yeah. it's it's a very demanding type of business with some of these RV parks. The interesting thing to me, the rental rates appear to be pretty close to like a hotel or motel nightly room yep. rate in some cases but i would imagine that the client demand i'm not saying they don't exist you know of course they exist but i still have to imagine they're less complex they're less demanding they're less onerous <clears throat> to fulfill versus putting a hotel or motel in that same spot and now all the the headache that goes with operating that business yeah, is that you fair or am i misguided yeah i would have thought that too Okay. But what I found out is in the destination park that I stayed in while we were doing due diligence on this operator was near Fort Worth, Texas. They have only a handful of employees year round, but they have over a hundred employees in the summer. And if wow. you think about it, you know, a remote location, a hundred employees, that's a pain. It's yeah. going to be, you know, like some of these national parks that have people, you know, international students coming in for the summer. Um, it's 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 quite a management headache for this destination park, which may sound like a disadvantage, but for a company who knows how to do it, it's a barrier to entry to ward off competitors. So that's where you come in or your strategy comes in, right? Which is 
if you can figure out then that piece, you know, aligning with, with good management, then now you're investing in a, like a vertically integrated operation, right? It's, it's right. real estate leveraged with, with good operations and potentially from an investor standpoint, whether GP or LP, you know, you don't necessarily have to take on the, the headache of the management. Is, is that essentially? Yeah. I mean, we, we, as a fund manager and of course for passive investors, it's, you know, I mean, for us, we're very involved doing due diligence and getting to know them and tracking their performance and holding them accountable. But of course, for LP investors, there's none of that, as you know. So are, you know, in self-storage, I guess there's a, and again, I'm not super knowledgeable about that sector, but you have publicly traded REITs, you know, that, you know, are integrate, you know, vertically integrated to, to you know, fairly substantially. Then you have other companies that are roll-up plays that again are vertically integrated. Then you have some investors or fund managers who outsource the management to management companies that specialize in that. What's the norm in in our V park? You know, outside of the mom and pops, is the norm to be vertically integrated? Are there or are there, you know, management companies for hire like there would be in the yeah, self-storage world? Yeah. So there's, like I said, a handful of REITs. I mean, there may be more that I don't know of, but I only know of three that manage RV parks, equity lifestyles, and sun communities, uh, do mobile home parks and RV parks. Mm. Um, but most of the others are, you know, thousands of mom and pops. And of course they get the benefit of being part of a franchise. They could be part of the, um, Yogi bear jelly, Jellystone franchise. Yeah or possibly KOA. So they get some benefit there, but they're mostly vertically integrated and they're mostly, you know, mom and pop or just a little above mom and pop. Okay. So let's actually talk about REITs for a second here, you know, versus private funds. So, you know, I would imagine, you know, and I'm not asking about any specific fund or even specific REIT here, but do private funds generally yield, you know, more income? Than, than a publicly traded REIT would in this space? Yeah, you know, it's hard to speak to that universally, like you said, but I mean, I took a look uh, when I put together my RV Park special report at the um, uh, ups and downs and the yield uh, from a couple of the REITs. And one REIT um, specifically was Equity Lifestyles. And the other one was Sun Communities. And um, first of all, I noticed they went up and down at the same time, even though they're totally different businesses. I'm being a little sarcastic here because <laughs> that's what the market did. They, right. you know, the, 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 uh, the problem with a publicly traded REIT is, you know, they're subject to the mood on Wall Street, a war in Europe, the investor mood, and, you know, potentially a CEO scandal. And so they go up and down uh, independent of the actual business, which, you know, I don't love that. I don't want to invest in that. But the thing that bothered me even more was realizing that the yield was only a few percent. I mean, like the cash flow that an investor would get. Two and a half, three percent range or something, right? Yeah, at, at least when I did this in the fall of 2022, 
the dividend yield was 2.3% for each of those. So they're throwing off 2.3% cash flow to investors. Um, you know, I mean, I can't speak for a whole bunch of them, but I would guess a good syndication or fund could throw off quite a bit more cash flow than that. In fact, ours is projected to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and then appreciation as well um, with some significant upside for investors who are, you know, hanging in there toward till uh, a refinance or a sale of an asset. Sure. And and so, Paul, without getting into any specific offering or specific fund, if an investor, you know, an LP wants to allocate some cash to investing in RV parks, you know, what should they be looking for with a sponsor? Are there multiple sponsors out there? Are there any pitfalls to avoid? You know, I mean, what what's what's the lay of the land if if I'm an LP and, and I want to invest, you know, in a more passive yeah. way? Yeah, I would say either find a syndication that has a great track record, great team. I mean, we have a 28-point due diligence checklist we have before we'll invest with a sponsor. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I'm, I can make that available to people. They could use it to do their own due diligence, or they could just go uh, to Amazon or Bigger Pockets and buy Brian Burke's wonderful book, The Hands-Off Investor. Uh, it's 350 pages of painfully detailed reading on how to vet an operator or a deal. And uh, Brian's with Praxis Capital. He's in the multifamily world, but his book is just fantastic. Gives all kinds of ideas on what to think about. But I mean, I'd be asking how much skin they have in the game. Yeah. How experienced is their team? How many full cycle deals have they done? What type of debt do they use? Why do they use that type of debt? Uh, what, you know, how they underwrite, uh, what happens if rents don't increase and occupancy drops? Um, I'd be asking all kinds of questions like that. What's the net worth of the sponsor? Um, how much are they, you know, what do they do when things go wrong? Uh, you know, we do like doing background checks and criminal checks and reference checks. We like asking investors who, you know, we happen to track down that invest with them or even former employees who left to ask them the truth about the company. And um, I mean, honestly, that's why we only invest in, uh, you know, something like one or two out of every hundred operators that we examine. And we've examined many, many, many hundreds over the years and only invested in 17 ever. So our RV parks really no different from any other sector within private real estate. You know, you have to have yeah. to do your due diligence and you know, that's, that's your role. Well, we're almost out of time, but you know, going back to the industry, you know, not, not talking about funds per se, but just, just RV, you know, the, the growth that you talked about from work at home and all of these factors that, that just more people are buying RVs. Do you see that growth continuing? You know, I you know I, I'm not asking for any specific numbers, but yeah, is this is this a generational, you know, decade or decades long growth story in your view? You know, I am not sure. I'd like to say yes, and that's what I actually believe in my heart. But I can make an argument that that was you know that the the pandemic was somewhat of a blip. 
And now things will just kind of calm down and go back to somewhat normal. That's not what I'm hearing from campers and the three, the two RV owners on my street, but um, I, I, I could see it going either way, but here's the point. Even if things just flatten out in RV camping or any sector, self-storage, mobile home parks, if you can find an operator that has a, a really good penchant for finding significantly undervalued, particularly mom and pop owned and operated deals um, and buying them and improving them, you can have, you can make a lot of, you could potentially make a good bit of cash flow and profit on that deal anyway. So for example, we invested with a self-storage operator recently and he acquired a uh, self-storage asset in a great location that had a bunch of homeless people renting out units, a whole bunch of people who weren't paying. The average rent was $60 for a 10 by 10 unit. And we're talking in a nice area, but the market average right around him was $141. And so almost 2.5X. $148, almost 2.5 X over the price that they were renting for. So even if self-storage is, let's say it's saturated, let's say it's overbuilt in so many places. If you can find deals like that, you could theoretically make money in many different markets. This is what Buffett talks about when he talks about finding, you know, as a value investor, finding intrinsic value in places where other people miss it. Right. And that, that, that gives you a little bit of a moat, but you know, I, I appreciate the, the honesty and saying you can argue it both ways, but I, I think I would take the bull case in the sense that the pandemic was whatever it was, a 12 or 18 month period of, you know, all these short-term changes, but it unlocked a lot of long-term changes in terms of lifestyles and expectations so, you know, the work from home thing or, you know, the, those platforms that are getting more usage out of existing RVs, you know, mm-hmm. I could just see that those trends continuing in the future. They weren't, they don't really appear to have reversed since right. the end of the pandemic. So uh, I'm comfortable going on record and saying I'm an RV bull, I'm an RV park bull. That being said, Paul, where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about Wellings Capital and all of your offerings? Yeah, they can go to Wellings, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com. And if they'd like to get a free special report on RV park investing, they can go to wellingscapital.com slash resources, and they can contact me there as well. And I'll be sure to link to the website as well as to the special report in our show notes. So all our visitors can always access those at wealthchannel.com and get access to that special report. Paul, thanks again for coming on the show and sharing your insights about RV parks today. Thanks so much, Andy. It was an honor. Absolutely. It was fun. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.